As I mentioned, uh, Solomon is trying to think his way through every theory of life, every conceivable philosophy, and take it to its logical conclusion. He forces us to think along with him. He has the time, the resources, the mental equipment to think through every conceivable approach to life and draw from it its logical conclusions. And he comes to the same place that James Taylor comes to. It's just a lovely ride. You only go around once, so uh, you better go for all the gusto. Because if you don't get it now, you're not going to get it at all. Now remember what Solomon is doing. He has deliberately shut himself off from the light of revelation. He's reasoning as unaided man reasons, that is, man without any revelation. If God had never spoken, if we had not seen God in Jesus, if we had no Bible, we would come to precisely the same conclusions. People tend to write on the shirt tails of uh, Christians. They, a lot of their assumptions are basically a, a Christian assumptions. But if you pin them down, they don't have any reason for those beliefs. It's just the way it is. That's the way life is. But they have no objective basis for their belief. And you see, that's what Solomon is trying to get us to do. He's making his face facts squarely. If we had no revelation, these are the conclusions to which we would come. Fundamentally, we'd all be existentialists. We'd just say, eat, drink, and be merry because you only go around once. That's it. Now, uh, we've been working our way through this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Would you turn there with me to chapter 7, please? We have to finish the book this morning. I thought we had a couple of more Sundays, but we don't. So we're going to have to leap over a great deal of this material, but I want to try to summarize for you his arguments in these concluding chapters, beginning with chapter 7. Solomon's concern here is the concern of contemporary philosophers, ethicists, we say people that are trying to think through what is good and what is true and what is beautiful, moral theologians, moral philosophers. And so he raises the question, what is good? This is in the last verse of chapter 6. For who knows what is good for a man in his life? Our politicians tell us they know what's good for us. Others try to tell us what's beautiful and what's true, but the question is, how do we know what is good? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? In other words, he is concerned not merely about values for today, but the what are the eternal values? What are, as philosophers say, what are the non-terminating cores around which we can integrate our life? What is it that goes on even after our life? These universals that apply in, in every generation. And then he does an odd thing. As I've mentioned before, these Eastern philosophers do not always argue cause and effect. They don't uh, look for logical reasons. They tend to hammer us with facts. And so he brings together a whole bunch of proverbs, string them, uh, strings them together. This was the way they often taught in their schools, one proverb after another. It's, rule, it's teaching by the rule of the hickory stick, in a sense, except he's not whacking us over the head with a stick. He's beating us over the head with certain proverbs, trying to get it through our thick skull that uh, some things are true. Verse 1, a good name is better than fine perfume. Oh, you bet, we say. It's good to have a good reputation. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. We say, oof, 
You know, there's one of those blows to the solar plexus that we've been receiving all the way through this book. Because, as he goes on to say, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. In other words, if you want to know what's good, it's good to go to a funeral. Because that's where you're going to find reality. That's where you will have to face the fact of your impending death. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. I call that the power of positive pessimism. Verse 5, it's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. It's better to be rebuked than to have people flatter you and tell you how well you're doing. Verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. That's, that's the question that we old folks are always asking. Why have things gone sour? We remember the good old days. That's what psychologists call euphoric recall. We just remember the good things. We don't remember the evil of those days. The good old days were just as evil as the bad new days. Uh, I remember some graffiti I saw on a wall at Stanford University once. It said, nostalgia ain't what it used to be. Verse 11, wisdom along with an inheritance is a good thing. The counterpart of that proverb today is uh, uh, wisdom with a dollar bill will buy you a cup of coffee. Verse 13, consider what God has done. And then he describes this iron determinism that locks us in. What, Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, look out. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. You don't know what lies ahead. Now, remember, this man is speaking as though the Bible had never been written. And if we didn't have a Bible, you wouldn't have a clue about what lies beyond death. Not a clue. So he shifts on us again. He's doing this all the way through the book. He shifts from one aspect of his search to another. And now he centers on trained to understand the difference between good and evil. He's been talking about what's good. Now he wants to compare good with evil. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. I thought I thought that one up. That's the moral dilemma that we all observe around us. The good die young. Why is it that the good tend to perish and the evil continue on in their evil ways, unrepentant, unjudged? They die safe and secure in their beds right to the end of their life. They seem to have no hassles. Nobody is bothering them. They die fat, dumb, and happy. That doesn't seem right. So, he concludes, don't be over-righteous. Nothing too much, he says. Don't be over-wise. Don't be over-wicked. It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. What he's doing is recommending moral cowardice, the middle road. Don't have too much religion, but you better have a little bit because you never know. There may really be a God out there somewhere. And don't be too good because that will rack your life up. And don't be too evil because that will make things difficult for you. Try not to try too hard. It's such a lovely ride, James Taylor says. So you just play it straight down the middle. Verse 20, there's not one righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. He's thinking about the difference between right and wrong, and he just comes to this startling conclusion. There is not one 
righteous person in the world. He's like Diogenes out looking for an honest man, and he can't find an honest man. Oh, he does find one. Verse 28, I found one upright man among a thousand. I, I found one in a million, but get this, not one upright woman among them all. <laughs> Is this guy uh, a misogynist or what? So he's arguing, all men are wicked and women are the worst of all. Now that's his experience, see. So uh, then he continues to pursue this matter of wisdom. Here's a little hymn in praise of wisdom. Who's like the wise man who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face. It cheers him up and changes his hard appearance. It softens him up. But, and then he goes on to talk about another one of the hard facts in life. Here is an obstinate, hard-headed king, and you can't tell him anything. And so wisdom has to fold its wings in the presence of this of this king, since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Can't challenge his authority. So if you're really thoughtful, you'll keep your thoughts to yourself, and you'll wait until he dies. That, that's the way he argues. Look at verse 9. All this I saw and applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There's a time when a man lords it over others to their hurt, and then I saw the wicked buried. So the thing to do is just outlive him. Since you can't change his mind, since you can't give him any counsel, and just live longer than he does, the grave will solve the problem. Wait until he dies. That is cynicism of the worst kind. Uh, verse 13, or pardon me, verse 11, when the sentence for, and he's still pursuing this idea of wickedness and how you deal with it. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. That's a truism. We know that's true. The best justice is swift, certain justice. I listened some time ago to an interview with the chief of police of the city of Atlanta saying that the safest people in the city of Atlanta are these women that carry money for the mafia. They carry money from the numbers game. And they will sometimes have hundreds of thousand dollars of dollars in a paper bag, and they carry them through the streets of Atlanta, and they are untouched. They are safer than they would be in their rocking chairs in Phoenix, Arizona. Because everyone knows that if you touch that money, you're dead. You'll be learning how to tread water with concrete shoes on within 24 hours. So that's a truism, you see. That, that's the way it should be. But let's read on. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that they say it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. That's what it said. They'll dig their own grave. But there's something else meaningless at work in the earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. And so he comes right back to the emptiness and the meaninglessness of life. So he commends enjoyment. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. The secret of life is enjoying the passing of time. So eat, drink, and marry because you only go around once. So then in verse 16, 
He begins to discuss this matter of knowledge. What can we know? No one, he says in verse 17, can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out. Man, that is unaided man, man without revelation, cannot discover its meaning. Einstein said, we'll never understand it all. So I reflected on this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do in God's hand, but nobody knows whether love or hate awaits him. So we're in God's hands, but we don't know if they're good hands or bad hands. We don't know what God is going to do. He may be on the side of the wicked. So how do, how do, you know, how do we know? So the best, the best thing is not die. That, he goes on to argue, the best, you know, while there's life, there's hope, because after, after the grave, there's no hope. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a, li- a live dead is better off than a live dog is better off than a dead lion. While there's life, there's hope. For the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. He's tracing this uh, again. This theme of agnosticism. We don't know anything apart from revelation. We have no idea what awaits us. So, verse seven: Go eat your food with gladness. Here we are, existentialism again. Go for the gusto. Eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. We're only here for a while. Might as well show some style. So go buy yourself a fur-lined jogging suit from Neiman Markup and live it up. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love all the days of this meaning life that God has given you into the sun, all your meaningless days. You see the juxtaposition of those two ideas? Your life is meaningless, so, you know, enjoy life with your wife. Everyone, remember the line? Everyone knows that love is the only road. And the, interesting enough, the world's coming back to this. See, they're tired of being out there on the streets. They're tired of the singles bars. They're tired of hustling. So they're talking now about commitment and marriage and the movies and the literature that are being produced today are all they're going back to this the fact of, of marriage because there isn't anything else out there, they're saying. And 3,000 years ago, Solomon came to that conclusion. So just enjoy life with your wife all your meaningless days. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. That's nihilism. That's nothingness. That's the big chill. That means when you die, it's over. So you better get it now. Now, death is not the only hazard. Another, you know, that's that's out there in the future. What about right now? And he shifts to the chanciness and the iffiness of life. Life is full of jeopardy. There are all sorts of things that are going to make our lives difficult. The race is not, uh, verse 11, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance takes things out of our hands. I've long Believed and often said there is absolutely no correlation between wealth and ability. It seems to be luck more than anything else. Some people get wealthy and some do not. 
Moreover, verse 12, no man knows what his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This friend of mine said this past week, everything in life is easier to get than to get out of. See, these are all examples of the unpredictable twists in life. The things that hit us and suddenly take, take the wind out of, out of us. Uh, he continues, verse 13, I saw an example of wisdom that uh, struck me as significant. He says, it greatly impressed me. There was a little city and uh, it was surrounded by a great king and he built huge siege works against it. And there lived in that city a, a poor man, but he was very wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom, but nobody remembered that poor man. I read this on my vacation. I thought of Winston Churchill, a wonderful old man who came to the helm of Great Britain at a critical time in our history. And, and basically saved them, and then was jettisoned and forgotten. I suppose the uh, uh, contemporary principle uh, or proverb is, when you're right, no one remembers. When you're wrong, no one forgets. Uh, he continues with this collection of proverbs. As I said, this was a teaching tool in the ancient Near East. It's the sort of thing you do. I mean, a young man comes to you and he says, I think I found the one. I want to get married. And you say, well, he who hesitates is lost. A uh, bird in hand is better than two in the bush, but look before you leap. Uh, you, he just strings together some proverbs here. Uh, verse 1, chapter 10. As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It's easier to ruin a good thing than, than to make it better. It's easier to make something smell bad, basically, than to make it smell good. Uh, here's a proverb that ought to gladden all you Republicans. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. <laughs> Actually, that's not a political philosophy. That's a uh, moral philosophy. Left-handedness in the ancient Near East uh, signified something sinister. Uh, and the fool, as he walks along the road, lacks sense. He has a lack of direction. He turns to the left. He turns to wrong while the heart of the wise man turns to the right. Uh, Verse 6, fools are put in many high places. I thought that ought to be a plaque in corporate boardrooms. I thought about putting that in our elder meeting room, but then I thought about putting it in my own office. Uh, We should have no illusions about leaders. There are no answers there. And then he continues with a series of proverbs that point out how precarious our existence is. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stones may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be endangered by them. Verse 11 seems to be a throwaway line, but it's it's very profound. If a snake bites before it's charmed, there's no profit for the charmer. That's akin to our uh, proverb, uh, you're not a carpenter until you run one finger through the saw. If you run too many fingers through the saw, you're not a carpenter. (laughs) No one knows what's coming. How can you tell him what will happen after him? Remember James Taylor's line, nobody knows how they got to the top of the hill. Since we're on the way down, might as well enjoy the ride. Verse 15, a fool's work wearies him. He does not know the way to town. That's akin to our uh, our adage about the fool who gets lost in a phone booth. 
And then some a series of Proverbs on practical politics. And then finally, verse 20, Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom, because a bird might carry your words. You're not even safe in your own bed. Verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you'll find it again. Give portions to seven, yes to eight. And that proverb is often quoted, misquoted by people. If you look at the next line, uh, the reason for the proverb is given, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. This is the equivalent of our proverb, don't put all your eggs in one basket, because someone is likely to uh, break some of the eggs. Some more proverbs about the iffiness of life. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it lies, it will lie. A place where it falls, it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. Here again, we live in a closed system. Farmers are controlled by the weather. Uh, time and chance take everything out of our hands. And he says, as you do not know. Here's this return again to agnosticism. Reason will drive us to agnosticism if we are if we are honest, absolutely honest with ourselves, and we exclude God and His revelation. The only conclusion we can come to is that we do not know anything for sure. And if we think we do, we're just whistling into the wind. And uh, He comes to that conclusion: You do not know. Verse five: You cannot understand. Verse six: You do not know what will succeed, whether this. Or that, or whether both will do equally well. And so he comes to his finale. I, I just love this section of Proverbs from 11, 7 on. Because he begins to speak directly to the young men and women that would be listening to this lecture. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament was primarily written, first uh, uh, taught orally, and then written down for the benefit of young men and women in Israel. It was, it was a pedagogical uh, device. And the emphasis that the wisdom literature na- makes is quite different from the emphasis of the what we call the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The emphasis there is that sin is against God, and it is. But the emphasis in the wisdom literature is that sin against is against you. And when you sin, you destroy yourself. And if you want to trash your life, this is the way to do it. They lay it on the line, the, the, the sages, the wise men do. And uh, this is the approach he's taking, and he is addressing himself to the young men and young women in his congregation. Now listen. Light is sweet, and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. It's nice to wake up alive. Who wants to wake up dead? However many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all, but let him remember. Three times in this passage you will say, remember, remember the days of darkness. That's the day of death, for they will be many. In other words, you're going to be dead a whole lot longer than you've been alive. So you should face very soberly the fact of death. That's something young people never think about. We all think of ourselves as immortal. Until we die, or until someone very close to us dies, until a land bias dies, or Salvador, Santiago Salvador, the little flyweight boxer, I think he was the world champion. I remember reading something about his death in Time magazine some years ago, and he said to the Time interviewer, 
the question was asked, what do you plan to do with the rest of your life? And his comment was, I, I don't know, I have the rest of my life to figure that out. The next day he was dead, ran his Porsche into a tree, and that was the end of his life. So those things hit us. We start realizing that death is at the end of every life. Everyone has to face that fact. So then he begins to counsel the young man, young woman, to be happy. Be happy. Be happy while you're young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart, whatever your eyes see. This is one of the very few places in the Old Testament where the scribes actually changed the text at one point in the history of the text. Because it seemed like uh, here he was giving bad counsel again, and this is in the portion of the book where he's turning toward the truth. And in the book of Leviticus, you have just the opposite statement made. Don't follow the desire of your eyes. But here he's saying, follow the desire of your eyes. But they were wrong. They should have left it in. Because Solomon's point is, young men, young women, don't be vexed by life. Don't let life bum you out. Go out and have, you know, go for the hilt. Live your life to the hilt. Race your motorcycles across the desert. Ski the near vertical slopes. You know, go for it all. Get it now. That's all right. But, but, he says, no, for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. Sounds like a trap. Go out and live your life, and then at the end of it, God's going to say, I got you. No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying you, you have to relate to life's realities and responsibilities. One of these days, you're going to have to stand before God. That's one of those, another one of those hard facts you're going to have to, you're going to have to reckon with. That's the caveat. That's the warning, see? So live life with all the gusto you can put into it. Live life dangerously, he says. But just remember, remember, the best thing in life, the best things in life aren't things. The best thing in life is God. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he would say with William Law, if you have not chosen God, then you will have missed the one thing for which you were made. As Augustine put it, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless. Our heart is restless, is the way he puts it, until it finds rest in you. Don't forget your creator. Oh yeah, go out and live life all the way. Go for it. But... uh, Remember your creator in the days of your, of your youth, before, before the days of trouble come. And the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain. I read this this summer and it brought to mind a line from a poem that I, I read years ago and somehow it's one of those nails that stuck in my, in my mind. I've never been able to forget it. The line says, there comes a mist Uh, There comes a chill. Oh, yeah, I never forgot it. There comes a chill and a blinding rain, and life is never the same again. And I have discovered in my own life and in the life of every human being that I know that there is a watershed. There's a certain point where it dawns on you you're not going to live forever. And that's when you reach the top of the hill and you start down. I know when it happened to me. I know when it happened to my friends. They don't often talk about it, but if they're honest, they do. And as James Taylor puts it, now we're on the way down. You know, there's that long, hard, tough ride to the top of the hill, and you get to the top, and then you're on the other side. Remember the one who made you before it's too late. 
before the years approach when you say, I have no, no pleasure in them. When the keepers of the house tremble at your hands. When your hands begin to tremble. And the strong men stoop at your legs. Get bow-legged as you get older. And the grinders cease because they are few. It's your teeth. They start being replaced by artificial teeth. And those looking through the windows grow dim. Your eyes start to go. I remember it was about 45 and I was I had gone back to school for that year. And, and I remember looking at a, a text and, and discovering I'd gone blind. I couldn't read it. And I went to my doctor, and he said, how old are you? And I said, 45, and he handed me a pair of, bi- of, of, of uh, bifocals. He said, it happens to all of us. <laughs> Those looking through the window grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, have you ever heard uh, corn being ground? In those days, it put two big stones together, and it made so much racket you could hear it. Ten blocks away, but the ears start to go, your hearing starts to go, and the sound of grinding fades. I know what that's like. I'm deaf in my left ear. I have to sit on Carolyn's left side all the time. Otherwise, I don't hear anything she's saying. And When I'm in a restaurant with people, all the extraneous noise just wipes me out, and I'm usually leaning over the table, staring at your mouth, trying to figure out what you're saying. You know, what's, what's that? You say he died? No, no, your shoe's untied, I said, you know. <laughs> gets embarrassing to keep saying, what, what? When men rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, they get up with the birds, but they can't hear them. When men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, I thought of my father when I read this. I told some of you before how much I admire my father's courage. He wasn't afraid of anything or anybody. And he got in his late 80s and early 90s, and he was afraid to drive. And uh, I remember one day my sister telling me he got in his car and he drove up to the freeway, which is about an hour, about a mile away. And he got that far and he turned the car around and drove all the way back and parked it and never drove again. We start to get afraid. We don't want to do the things we used to do. When the almond tree blossoms, hair begins to turn white. The grasshopper drags himself along, no spring in our step anymore. Heard a guy at the courthouse say the other day he thought he was about a step slower than he was when he was 30. What went through my mind is that I'm about 100 yards slower than I was when I was 30. And desire no longer is stirred. The caper Literally, the text says the caperberry is ineffective. A caperberry was considered to be an aphrodisiac in those days. You become impotent. Then man goes to his eternal home and mourners go about the street. And you say, ah, yeah, but I'm young. There's still time. It's Augustine's phrase. You know, that's what he kept saying. To his mother and others who pled with him and prayed for him to come to God. He said, there's still time. Remember him. Verse 6, before the silver cord is severed, that's the spine. Or the golden bowl is shattered, that's the skull. Before the pitcher is broken at the spring, that's the heart. You have a heart attack. Or the wheel is broken at the well. That's a reference to the circulatory system. You bleed to death as a result of an accident. 
And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So you say, well, I'm going to wait until i got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, and then I'll, then I'll turn to God. And, and the philosopher says, you may not make it. You may not make it. You may die before the time. It can happen like that. Some of us, if the statistics are right, are not going to be here next year. Meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. As Dr. Kidner says, whose commentary on Ecclesiastes is one of the finest commentaries I've ever read, said, every card in her hand is trumped. There's nowhere to turn except to God. He's him to sin. As I said before, we've been forced to come to God by the process of elimination. Nothing else has worked. And here's a man who's tried it all. So we can either go through the process ourselves and learn the hardware, or we can take his word for it. Verse 9, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He was street smart as well as uh, knowledgeable and intelligent. Wisest man that ever lived, we're told. He didn't keep his knowledge to himself. He imparted it to the people. He pondered it. He researched it. That's the meaning of searching it out. He set it in order. He edited these Proverbs and he put them all together in order to drive us to this conclusion that there is only one answer to life and it's found in in our Creator. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. He wrote accurately. He wrote well. The words of the wise are like goads. They spur our will They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. They stick in our mind. They're given by one shepherd. I mentioned in the first message that uh, all over the ancient world, in Egypt, in the Hittite Empire, up in what is uh, Turkey today, and and in in Mesopotamia, uh, that whole area, their, their sages were writing and asking, where is the shepherd? That's the word they use. Where is the shepherd? That will bring us out of this mess that we've made out of out of life. That's why the revelation to Israel was 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 looked for and loved and accepted because David could say, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." That's what Solomon is telling us. There is a word from outside. There is someone out there minding the store. There is a meaning in the universe. There's moral order to the universe. There is a God after all. And he has revealed himself as Solomon tells us. These words are given by one shepherd. Be warned my son of anything in addition to them of making many books there is no end and much study worries the body. He's not saying don't read books he's just saying read good books and the best books are those that are either inspired by uh, a shepherd or are written by men and women who believe in the shepherd. And then in verse 13, he comes to his bottom line. All's been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. 12 chapters, 221 verses, a whole lifetime of looking. And he comes right back to the beginning. The simple, basic truth you heard in, in Sunday school. G.K. Chesterton, in his little book, The Everlasting Man, tells a story about a young man who went off in pursuit of a giant who was supposed to have the answer to every question. He looked all over the world. 
When he was old, about to die, he stumbled back into his hometown. And as he crested the hill above the town, looked down, he realized that the folds on which the, his farm lay were actually the contours of the clothing of the giant he'd been looking for all of his life. That's why T.S. Eliot says that we come back to the beginning and we find out what we've been looking for all of our life. We just keep coming back to the basic facts that there is a God who made us and we are made for Him and we will never, never find satisfaction apart from Him. And Solomon says that's the whole duty of man. That's what it means to be a man or a woman, literally. That's all with reference to man, is the way he puts it. You want to be a human being? The way to be a human being is to fear God and keep his commandments. Submit to his rule. Yield to his lordship and his leadership. Make him your shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. And when he's our shepherd, we're satisfied. We don't want We don't need anything. Again, as Jesus put it, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never by any means whatever perish. So you see, that's what you've been looking for all your life. That's been at the root of all your quest. Everything that you searched for is answered in this one line. You need a shepherd. And the Lord Jesus is your shepherd. Now, I, I, you know, I think this is a word not only for those of you that are still looking and searching, but this is a, also a word for us that know the Creator or believe we have because we've acknowledged Him as our Savior and Lord. But the, the tendency of all of us is to think that there must be something more. We haven't really put our roots down into Him. We haven't really given ourselves wholly to Him. We aren't spending time reading the words of the shepherd. We haven't incorporated this this truth into our lives. And so there's some element of dissatisfaction in our lives. And we think, what I need to do is go back to school. If I go back to school, I'll find whatever it is I'm looking for. I'm not finding it in my home. My children bother me. My business is not going well. So I'm going to go back to school and get more knowledge. Do you remember what Solomon said? The more knowledge you get, the more grievous it becomes. He tried that. He wandering around his estate one day and thought, well, this is a bum deal. I don't like any of this. I think I'll go back to school. So he enrolled in graduate school, and he didn't find what he was looking for there. Or we think, well, I need to buy a new sofa or a new car, or change jobs or change wives or find a wife or whatever, you know. And, and, and it's like Satchel Foot Page says, the social ramble ain't restful. You know, the, the more you're out there hustling and looking, the more uncomfortable you, you become. And you know God, but you don't really believe it. He is the end of your search. And what I would encourage you to do is just put your roots down into Him. That's where you're going to find yourself. Where are you going to find your worth? And then begin to share that truth with others. There's nothing quite like giving your life away to help you find yourself. Get involved with international students. You don't have to be theologically sophisticated in order to share your life, to befriend one of these students and and, and impart truth to them. You don't even have to know what they believe. It would be helpful Certainly you can avoid uh, offending them in, in various ways if you know their culture, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is just to love them, befriend them, and start imparting the truth that you know a shepherd. 
You're following the one that they've been looking for all of their lives. See? We're getting involved with some of our high school kids or some of our children or uh, some of our senior citizens, you know, that are still out there looking. They're still searching. They haven't, they haven't found the shepherd. Jesus said, you, he said that of us, you and you alone are the light of the world. It's a pretty audacious statement when you think about it. He set that against the, you know, the 8th century B.C. and the golden age of Greece and the great philosophers that flowed out of that period. And Jesus looks at this little group of 12 men and he says, you and you alone are the light of the world. You have the light that enlightens every man. Why are we keeping it to ourselves? When the whole world, quite literally, is going to hell in a handbasket, when people are out there dying of exhaustion, looking for the answers, and we know the God that they're looking for. Just befriend them and impart that truth to them. Just tell them what you know about God and what he's done for you. That's what it means to be a witness. That's what it means to be salt and light. And if you're still out there looking and searching and you've just decided that Jonathan Livingston Seagull is actually a dodo bird and you've heard Jesus knocking, then you need to open the door and let him in. Uh, the book of Revelation says that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He's waiting for you. He wants you. He stands at the door. Listening for the faintest sound to encourage you to, to come to him. Again, as Augustine said, our oh God, you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until he finds rest in you. That's the only place you're going to find rest. The only place. You can either spend the rest of your life, waste the rest of your life looking for him. Or you can take Solomon's word. The whole duty of man is wrapped up in this one principle. Just fear God, know God, and follow him. Let's pray. We've gone through this entire book, and uh, we've not given you an opportunity yet to respond. I would like to do that this morning. If some of you are here, and you've been searching, and you've, you realize that our Lord Jesus is the end of that search. Would you just ask him into your heart? Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door of your life and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll, I'll come in. You don't have to clean up your residence for him. You don't have to make it more hospitable. He'll do that for you. He just wants to come in. All of those, those yearnings, those longings, those... The the, the 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 call that you've heard and not really recognized or understood is is God calling you saying seek my face and all you have to say is Lord I I will seek your face I will open the door and I will let you come in our Lord Jesus died for us He paid the price for our sins so that we have access into the Father's presence. We don't have to hide from him. He's not mad at you. He loves you. He longs to know you. We can know him, unlike the philosopher who did not ever 
at least in his uh, in his purposes in the book, uh, for his purposes in the book, he he did not see God as we see Him in the Word and in Christ. But we we can see Him. We can read the Gospels and see what He was like and how He He hungered for people and He went seeking them. He's seeking you. Would you just ask Him, man, Lord Jesus, come into my life? And if you did that, will you just raise your hand? No one can see you. No one's going to target you. But you need to affirm to yourself that this is something you've done. Will you just raise your hand? If you have asked the Lord Jesus to come in, will you raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. He said, if you ask me in, I'll come in. Lord Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for this both discouraging and encouraging word. The discouragement of it helps us to see life as it really is. The encouragement alerts us to the fact that there is one through it all who's calling us to himself. Thank you for that great truth. Thank you that you love us, that you've called us into an eternal relationship with you. Thank you that we do not have to fear the future. Our destiny is fixed and certain. Thank you for that great love that you have for us. Help us to believe that this is a message that needs to be heard. Help us to redeem the time because we know the days are evil, because we know people's hearts are, are hungry for the truth. Keep us from shrinking, from declaring that truth wherever we go. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.